Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Ben Guest about his new book, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. Ben, welcome to the show. Paul, thank you so much for having me. I'm a longtime fan of the show, so it's an honor to be on. Well, it's great to have you on. I wonder if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm, I grew up in Vermont and then Baltimore. And when I moved to Baltimore in high school, just kind of fell in love with basketball and the, the NBA, 90s NBA. Of course, you, read a great, you wrote a great book about the Knicks of the 90s, um, the, the almost champion Knicks. And after college, I joined Peace Corps and I was placed in a country called Namibia. Namibia, which is in Southern Africa, and had a wonderful experience, came back to the States, taught for a couple of years in the Mississippi Delta um, at a public school. And while I was there, I was the assistant coach for a high school basketball team, and we won the state championship. And then for one year, I became a head coach and did a terrible job coaching. We, We finished 10 and 13, so not a terrible record, losing record, but not a terrible record. But I was 27 years old, didn't have the right things in in mind about coaching. I was focused. I was consumed with wins and losses, and I thought that was what that was the most important thing. And I didn't pay attention to relationships with my players. I didn't pay attention to helping them improve with fundamentals and improve their individual games. It was just wins and losses, team strategy, and very much that top-down Bob Knight coaching approach. So I just, I stayed there one year and then got a job at the University of Mississippi and left coaching behind, never thought I would coach again. More than a decade later, I ended up returning to Namibia and ended up coaching a local high school team in Namibia. And we lost in the, the equivalent of the state championship. But at that time, I changed my philosophy. I changed as a person and I had a totally different approach, which was using meditation, mindfulness meditation, focusing on the fundamentals, focusing on relationships, um, long-term relationships with the players and trying to help them be better people. And they trying to help me be a better person. And it was just a wonderful experience. And we went undefeated up until the championship game, lost a heartbreaker and on that team, we had 10 players, um, six, six of them were seniors. And there was a professional league. There is a professional league in Namibia. And so we took the, the guys, the guys and I decided to start a professional league team, even though they were all teenagers, either having just graduated high school or still in high school. And uh, I'll, I'll stop there, but the book is, a, is about what happened next and the amazing story that happened. Yeah, it's really a wonderful story. And I want to I start off with, 
with basketball, with you talking in the book a little bit about how, you know, you would play in your driveway. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the same. That was kind of a refuge for me when I was a kid. I would, uh, you know, if I was in a bad mood, I could just go out and, and kind of get lost in, in, in me in the basket. And, um, was there, was there, when you were a kid doing that, was there a player or players that you emulated that you pretended to be? Yeah. But before I get to that, what, what was it that made you get lost? Cause I had the same feeling. That's an excellent question. Um, because it's you in your driveway alone, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's almost a, a meditative experience, right? Yeah. And, and that feeling something about the, the, re- drops the repetition of it, uh, the repetition mm-hmm. of the dribbling, the repetition of the shooting. Maybe that's it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, but I would, I would escape. And and the reason I asked that question is because I did that. I mean, my my guy was John Starks, not surprisingly, mm-hmm. based on my book. Um, mm-hmm. As a big Knicks fan in the in the '90s, uh, I pretend I was Starks, and I would you know over and over again. It would be you know three two, tie game. You know, I'm in Madison Square Garden, and three two one, and and for those for that hour or whatever it was, uh, I was in Madison Square Garden. You know, mm. and I wasn't I wasn't there, mm. and I wasn't dealing with ever with whatever teenage angst was, you know, bothering mm-hmm. me at the time. And, and I really got away. Yeah. Something similar for me in that it wasn't necessarily that I was pretending I was a, a an NBA player or, or emulating an NBA player more so. But as you said, the repetition, the feeling, the, com- the feeling of completeness when a ball would swish through the net, the fact that it's just, you, the ball in the basket, and also that feeling that incrementally you are improving at something and you can measure it. You know, how many, if if I shoot 10 free throws, how many can can I make? If I shoot 10 shots from this spot, how many can I make? Can I go around the world, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's not even getting into playing three on three at school or playing five on five pickup at college and the interaction, right? The teamwork, those magical moments that can happen. So growing up in Vermont, I guess the Celtics were my team, although I wasn't a sportsman um, in, in middle school or elementary school. And then in Baltimore, when I started getting into basketball, I really liked the 93 Celtics. So that was the year after Larry Bird retired. Right. And the predictions were that the Celtics would you know, be a 500 team. And they were an outstanding team. I think they won about 52 games. They almost won. No, they didn't almost win the Atlantic, but they they were much better than people thought they would be. And they were scrappy. So they signed Xavier McDaniel from your Knicks team. Right, right. And they had Reggie Lewis, Kevin Gamble, who was this sweet shooting him. small forward. And Sherman Douglas and D Brown split point guard. The general I, Sherman Douglas. Yeah. Sherman Douglas. Yep. And, and I loved D Brown. D Brown was my guy. Yeah. And I, um, and that, so they, and they had Kevin McHale. That was Kevin McHale's last year. They had Robert Parrish still. And they had, um, I think it was Pickney was the Ed power Pickney, forward. Yeah. yeah, Ed Pickney. And that was the playoff. And, and then they made the playoffs and they were the favorite against the Charlotte Hornets. And then in game one, Reggie Lewis collapses. And of uh. course that summer is the summer that Reggie Lewis died. And in that game, in that game one, 
D Brown had two of the most incredible blocks. So if you remember D Brown, he's six one. He won the dunk contest, but he had two of the most incredible blocks that I've ever seen. And one of them, they made an ad. The NBA made a commercial out of it, where D Brown got, he blocked Kendall Gill on a fast break, and he jumped up so high with both hands that his head at six one, his head hit the bottom of the of the backboard. So wow. um, the, that the Celtics were my team, and actually that summer. Um, that was my senior year of high school. And that summer was my first trip to Africa. I did a, um, a service trip to Kenya. And when I got home, found out that Reggie Lewis had, had died. Um, yeah. From so, Baltimore. Reggie Lewis is from Baltimore. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So that's a good segue to, to Africa. Tell me, mm-hmm. a, tell me about, tell every, our listeners about Namibia. Uh, I, I, I must confess, I'm fairly well-traveled, but I don't know much about Namibia. <laughs> so the, the summer after my senior year of college, I'm working at, this is in the book, I'm working at this public affairs office for Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And I can't wait to get out of there. And, I, and I've applied, I've been accepted to the Peace Corps, but they haven't told me yet where I'm going. And I get a call in the office, and it's somebody from Peace Corps, admin, and he says, you're going to Namibia. And I was like, great, fantastic. And in my mind, I was like, where's Namibia? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I'd never heard of Namibia. But of course, now it's an integral part of my life. Namibia is, is off the beaten path, but it is a relatively modern country. Uh, it's the first country north of South Africa. So they were under apartheid as a quote unquote protectorate of South Africa, which was just basically another word for a colony, a colony of South Africa. So they only gained independence from South Africa in 1990. And then of course the apartheid system in South Africa collapsed a few years later. So it's a relatively new country in terms Mm -hmm. of independence. Before their independence, they were uh, the name of the country was Southwest Africa. And again, it was just really a, a colony of South Africa. And it's just a wonderful place. It's There's only about 3 million people in a country the size of Texas. And the capital city, Windhoek, which is where I was based, where the team that I coach, where the professional league is, the Comus Basketball Association. It's just a couple hundred thousand people. And the city center is modern. You could be in any city anywhere in the world. There's a Hilton, there's a KFC. But as soon as you get 15 minutes outside of the city center, now you start seeing the remnants of the apartheid system where you have different locations where under apartheid, different ethnic groups, different tribal groups were forced to live. Um, now, of course, th- all the apartheid laws have been dismantled, but some of that um, history still remains. And so you see, you might find a, a very small concrete house. You might find tin shacks. You might find... Um, tin shacks and an outdoor cooking fire. And then if you go 20 more minutes out of that radius, now you're, it, it could be 2021 or it could be 1821. You have hmm. people walking to wells. Um, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think there's a cultural, there's, there's a cultural pattern that it's women who should fetch the water from the well. So you'll see if you get out into into the the village, as Namibians call it, it um, you'll see women 
walking from the homestead to the well or the well back to the homestead with with huge um, jugs balanced on their head. And they're right. just walking, not even holding the, the jug, just walking usually with a head wrap. And then the, the jug is balanced on their head. I was The airport's about 40 miles outside of, or about 20 miles outside of Wintook, outside of the capital. One time when I was driving to the airport, there was a cheetah just walking along the road. So it's this mix of, of present and past. And it is, what, what did you find so endearing about, about Namibia? Obviously, you, as you said, you, mm-hmm. you went there um, after college and then you went back many years later. What was it that drew you back to Namibia? Yeah, great question. It's a combination of a couple of things. Number one is the people, right? Wherever you are in this world, wherever you are listening now, and whatever your life is like right now, it's almost always the quality of life is based on the quality of the relationships around you. And so the the far and away, the number one most important thing um, for me with Namibia are the relationships that I have with people there. So when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, one of the language trainers, a local Namibian, is a guy named Dennis Shikwambi, and we became very good friends. And then when I left, which was in 2000, you know, that's before Facebook, before email for a lot of people, um, we just lost touch. But then with Facebook, reconnected and went back to visit. And he was married and with, with kids and just, it was so nice reconnecting and meeting the family. And then he and his wife, Vicky had a son and they named him Benjamin and asked him to be asked if I would be his godfather. Wow. So little Benbo is what we call him. Mm-hmm. And, um, Benbo's my nickname. And so I just thought I was sitting uh, at a diner, um, one day in Atlanta getting pancakes, sweet potato pancakes. And I just thought it'd be nice to watch little little Benbo grow up for a bit. So I took a job in Namibia with a two-year contract, but I would stay two years, come back, and I ended up staying eight because in addition to the people, the second thing is the way of life. And, and here in the U.S., we're so much, we're so caught up in the rat race and so caught up in, in you know, whatever the next thing is. And there's so much stress and everything is go, go, go. And in Namibia, it's not like that. It's like, why put off to t- today, which you can put off until tomorrow? Why mm-hmm. put off tomorrow, which you can put off till next week? Um, which, you know, coming from from uh, Amer- from white American culture can be an adjustment. Sure. But once once you get adjusted, it's like, oh, this way of life is much better. <laughs> like it's much more about hanging out hanging out with friends, socializing, meeting people, family time, relationships, and much less about work. So as you pointed out, after um, after you did Peace Corps in, in Namibia, you, you were down in the Mississippi Delta um, mm-hmm. and, and started coaching. You got into coaching. And... Um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read you a quote from this book, from your book, sure. this book, yeah. your book that I really liked. The winningest coaches in NCAA men's history were about control and maintaining control through intimidation and results through curses mm-hmm. and confrontations. So was I. And of course the two coaches you were referring to there are Bob Knight and coach Krzyzewski. 
Um, talk a little bit about that, what you meant by control. Mm-hmm. How, how, how are you controlling of your players? Sure. Yeah. So I, in the Delta at Simmons High School, I was an assistant coach for two years. And as I said, we, we won a state championship my first year there. And our star player actually ended up, a guy named Jasper Johnson, ended up getting played for two seasons in the G League and then played for years overseas. So really talented um, player, really talented squad. And I was a really good assistant coach. Being an assistant coach is, is about relationships and just you don't have all the stress, the, the stressor, the stress and pressure that a head coach has. There's not that conflict about minutes and so forth. And so as an assistant coach, you can just be supportive to the to the players. And so I still have great relationships with the guys that I coached now 20 years ago. In fact, this year is the 20 year anniversary of our state championship. And then partially having that glow of having won a state championship and and the head coach that I worked for, Mr. Willis, that year he won coach of the year for the state of Mississippi. So there's sort of this glow of, okay, you were the assistant coach, you won a state championship, got a a gold championship ring on your finger. And I interviewed for a couple head coaching jobs thinking I was ready to be a head coach and I wasn't. And I accepted a job at McLaurin Attendance Center in a school outside of Jackson, public school. And so that was my one year as a head coach. And that summer, uh, or actually even a little bit into the school year, I went to two coaching clinics. I went to uh, Texas Tech Coaching Clinic. Bob Knight had just accepted the job there. That was his first year after getting fired from Indiana. And then I went to a coaching clinic at Duke with Bob with Coach K. And, of course, Coach K played for Bob Knight at Army. And Knight was just an asshole. He was an asshole to everyone around him, whether it was- I'm shocked. (laughs) Right, right. Whether it was the assistant coaches, whether it was the women's coach, whether it was the student managers, the players, he slapped a player on the back of the head during practice. This is after he got fired from IU for putting his hands on students. So I can't imagine what it was like in the 70s or 80s. Anyway, he also did a number of good things. The way he organized practice was amazing. The strategies, the way he attacked his own defense, his man-to-man defense, all that stuff, I took pages of notes and still used years later. But if you can picture the scene, it's United, I think it's United Spirit Arena in Lubbock, Texas, this brand new arena at the time. And there's about 500 high school coaches in one section watching practice and then that evening watching the, the study session, the strategy session with Coach Knight where he outlines things on an overhead. And there was a moment where he calls one of the student managers over who's like a 19-year-old undergraduate, nervous, obviously in front of all these coaches, standing next to the general. And Knight says, you got your ear pierced this weekend? And he said, yes, sir, or yes, coach. And Knight said, you look like a fucking girl. And 500 coaches laughed. And I put that in the book because it sort of symbolizes this traditional alpha male coach. And you, and you see, and I saw and experienced in that moment, how this destructive, toxic masculinity just spread. It spread right away through 500 high school and middle school coaches that then went back to their schools. So I'll give you a specific example of how that influenced me. At one point during practice, Knight was upset that the team wasn't concentrating. And he said, um, 
if you know, drop another pass and I will turn this practice into a fucking track meet. I mean, you're just going to run them. Yeah. And so that I, I use that line probably two weeks later in my own practice. I will turn this practice into a fucking track meet because I thought it was cool. You know, as a 26 year old or 27 year old, um, first time coach and what I had seen modeled was that type of coaching. And I, I don't, I also want to acknowledge that I'm sure coach Knight has wonderful relationships with many of his players. And I've heard many of his players speak glowingly about how his coaching helped them later on in life, even if they didn't appreciate it at the time. And same with, with coach Krzyzewski. Coach Krzyzewski didn't treat anybody badly. He treated everyone well that I saw, but it was that same command and control model, just cursing all the time. He was upset with a mistake the players made. He told Chris Duhon, get the guys back in here at midnight. We're going to run sprints. And it's this, just this idea of punishment, right? If you don't do what the person in charge says, you're going to be punished. And that is the traditional coaching model um, that many people played under and then became coaches under and, and so forth. And so, but there were these little blips, people like Phil Jackson, that offered a different model. And of course, now today, Ted Lasso is one of the most popular television shows on the planet. And that's a completely different model from traditional coaching. And that was much more what I became when I returned to coaching because I had gotten partially because of what Phil Jackson wrote about meditation in his books. I'd gotten into meditation. I'd grown as a person. And I, I just approached things in a completely different manner the second time around. So when, when you were seeing Coach Knight and Coach K in action, were you in the moment where you saying this doesn't sit right with me? This is, I don't, I don't want no. to be this kind of coach or was a later reflection. No. Yeah. I was like, this is, they're cool. Like right. they're in charge. Like, the, you know what it is? It's respect. The players respect them. Right. And we get caught up, especially young coaches. I think in our, in our twenties, we get caught up with, we have to have the respect quote unquote of the players that that matters more than anything else rather than, can I, uh, can I curse on here? Yeah. Rather than these are fucking teenagers right. and they're going to make some dumb fucking decisions from time to time. And they're going to be boastful and insecure and confident and shy and everything all at the same time. And they're going to say stuff they regret, or they, they might try to show off for their friends and just having compassion for we're, whether we're teenagers or in our twenties or I'm in my forties now we're all just trying to figure, figure this out, figure life out. And we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to say things that we regret and um, act in ways that we regret. And so this idea of, I have to have the players respect me. I posted on Twitter the other day, there was a clip of um, Trent Dilfer, ex NFL quarterback, who's now a high school coach in Tennessee, I think. And he was, he was just grabbing like manhandling a player on the sideline and pushes him back and like, physically sits him down and then points like sit down and it's like that's that command and control model you have to obey me disobedience is the um the biggest sin and when i went back to coaching it wasn't like i had a bunch of disobedient players that were acting crazy but it was i, I that was no longer something i thought about something i considered or something that was important to me it was about uh, you know, I 
for whatever reason, these young men are in my charge and how, what can I do to help them be better people and better players? And also they're going to help me be a better coach and a better person. And you talk in the book about this philosophy of, um, how did you phrase it? Uh, detachment from the outcome. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Detachment from the outcome, which seemed to have a, that, that mentality seemed to have a profound effect on, on the way you approach coaching. Um, where did that come from? And, and can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I think that's the heart of, of one of the messages of the book, one of the themes of the book, which is that, and that, that came from, from meditation. So the, the message is the more you hold on to something, the more it's going to slip from your grasp. The, the more lightly you hold on to something, the greater the chance it will happen. And that comes from meditation of just being in the moment and trying. Med- I mean, meditation is a bunch of failing at trying to be in the moment, but getting these glimpses of um, experiences of being in the moment and not thinking about the past, not ruminating over the past, not being worried about the future, just being in the moment. And when you're in the moment, generally, and meditation does that for me, you experience life in a, in a much more present way and in a much more happy way. And in sports, it's much more about just do this play right. Let's just do this drill right. Let's get this interaction right. Not we have to win this game. And the way that that translates into actually playing better because it's this it's this odd thing, right, Paul, that the less I concerned myself with winning on the court, with wins and losses, the less I concerned myself with winning, the more we won. It's, yeah, it's you say crazy, that in the book. Right? It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So w- what happens is when you're not wor- when you're not focused on the outcome, it lowers the stress level. And so if you think about a time in your life when you have performed something well, and maybe it was something where there were some stakes attached, maybe it was an important test in school or um, an important moment in your life, presentation, interview, whatever. When you perform at your best, you almost always have a combination of two things. You feel prepared for whatever the task is or whatever the test is, and you feel relaxed prepared and relaxed. If you have those two things, you're going to be at peak performance. You're going to likely be in flow state. Uh, If you're prepared, but your stress level is through the roof, you probably won't perform at your best. If you're relaxed, but you're not prepared, you're just going to fuck up. (laughs) So it's prepared and relaxed. So the meditation, staying present in the moment, not focusing on the outcome, that allows you to be um, relaxed. Still have to be prepared, but that right. that takes care of the relaxed side. So you're 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 focusing on the moment, and you're not you're not consumed with the outcome. Mm-hmm. Is there still a place for goal setting? For uh, you know, did you talk to your team? You know, whether it be the high school team or then the professional team. Hey, hey, we have a goal of reaching the playoffs, so we're going to try and do this this season. Or is it as simple as, hey, we're going to try and get better every day, that kind of thing. Had, had, 
was goal setting a part of your, your, your coaching? That's a great question. So when I was a head coach in Mississippi, we had very clear, distinct goals that were tied to winning. And the goal was to win the district championship, make the state um, playoffs, make the semifinals. And so, and there was a sign on the locker room door, district champs, right? Um, so I forget what, what you had to win probably X number of games to, to, to ensure that you were the district champions and everybody would slap the sign every time they left the locker room. Right. And same thing when, I mean, not the same thing, same thing as in terms of just doing something totally different. When I went back to coaching in Namibia in my late thirties, there were no goals. My internal goal was to have positive relationships with my players because the players that I coached as a head coach in Mississippi, I'm not in touch with any of those players because I didn't, I I didn't focus on, on them. I didn't focus on the relationships that I should have been building with, with them. Uh, It was just basketball, just wins and losses. And so that was the mistake I was going to correct. And that was my internal goal. Externally, it's just, let's get better every practice. That's it. When we went when we went into the professional league, we did have an external goal of let's make the playoffs, um, and we barely made the playoffs just by a, a one point tiebreaker. Now, once we got into the playoffs, uh, as you've as you've read, Paul, it was a pretty uh, pretty special experience. But that was the only external goal I had over those two years in Namibia. Did you? I mean, reading the book and, and both the, the first year that, you know, the high school kids and then the second year, and like, you know, some of them were still high school kids, but mm-hmm. they were then professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any idea that they could accomplish what they accomplished? I mean, if, if, if I gave you, you know, if someone had asked you when those seasons started that, you know, the high school team that they would make the playoffs and get to the finals, the final game or, or um, you know, the second year that, that you would make the not only make the playoffs but upset the mighty wolves and then you know mm-hmm. go on and win the championship was that even was that something you thought about was that something that you would have even thought was conceivable it's a good question so that first year i could tell after a couple of games we went undefeated in the regular season the high school year and I, so i knew we were we were very good and in fact when the playoffs started i thought we would win the championship and when the championship game started i thought we would win the game and so that was, again, going back to you have to be detached from the outcome. I was not detached from the outcome. Even though I changed and grown as a person and so forth, I still, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's a progression. So I still had some attachment to the outcome and thought and predicted and, and had even internally like worked out, okay, this is the Facebook message I'm going to post when we win the championship, right? Like we're good. We're really good. We're going to win the championship. Right. Now when I, like the first day of practice, I didn't, I was like, Whoa, we got some work to do. Um, but I didn't really know any of the other teams. So it was just like, okay, let's just get better and we'll see what happens. Um, the second year in the KBA, that's the name of the professional league, the the Comus basketball association, KBA. Uh, it was no, you know, no, the, no predictions, no attachment to outcome. Just let's get better. 
Let, let's every day let's get better. And of course, I read the book, but for our listeners, could you talk a little bit about the state of basketball in Namibia, in Namibia in general mm-hmm. at at, mm-hmm. at that time? Yeah, it, it's so. Most countries in Africa have a professional league. The, the top professional league is probably the South African League. And then, of course, Europe has a number of professional leagues. So in Namibia, the top, the very best players in that league, some of the guys had played professionally in South Africa. I think at least one guy had played professionally in Germany. So you had players or you have players who are outstanding players anywhere outside of the U.S. Overall, I would compare the quality of the league to a, a Division Three conference in the U.S. So a, a Division One team would wipe the floor with any team in that in the, the KBA. Same with Division Two. Same probably with a, a really good, you know, a top. Division three team, although maybe not. I don't. It's tough. Sometimes it's tough to sort of tell. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely two steps down or three steps down. Um, but it is a, a recognized professional league. You know, if you, if if a foreigner comes in, they have to get FIBA cl- um, cleared if they played in a, in a different league, so on and so forth. But there is a a wide range of talent and ability in in the KBA. Do do they follow the NBA in Namibia? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Every you know, it, and a lot of the young guys like um, they like James Harden or they like Giannis. The old heads like Jordan, right? Um, Jordan versus LeBron. Who's the goat? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a connected world. So, and in fact, the NBA now has started an African league. Yeah, yeah. Um, I forget the name of it, but um, but that's really exciting. Yeah. Um. Go back to Coach K and Coach Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, you you know you rejected their approaches, control based approaches, yeah, um, and had great success with that. Yeah, um, but Coach K and and Bob Knight are two of the greatest basketball coaches that have ever lived. Uh, Coach K has more wins than anyone ever. Um, mm-hmm. Bob Knight might still be second. He was first. Coach K passed him. I don't know if anyone else has surpassed him. I think maybe Roy Williams passed him, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, No, I I, I might be wrong. Yeah, maybe he's still number two. Maybe. He's up there. (laughs) Yeah, Um, a lot of wins. I mean, yeah, he he won, I believe, three national championships. I mean, you know, these are legendary Mm -hmm. coaches. Um, So I guess my question is, is Ben Bill's approach – is that the right approach? Is that is that just is that just the best approach for Ben, or is that the best approach? Period. Would do you believe? Mm, it's a good question. So I think, especially with Coach K, because I I do admire a lot about Coach K, and even though I had this anecdote in the book about going to his coaching clinic at Duke, from everything I've I've heard from players like J.J. Redick or Grant Hill um, that starred at Duke and played for Coach K, even LeBron, who played for Coach K on the Olympic team, he's their guy. And he, Coach K obviously 
is mindful and intentional about building strong, positive relationships with his players that go on forever. Go on long after Duke or the Olympics. So that's really, that's the key. The, the key is um, focusing on relationships. And if you do that, then the other things I think will take care of themselves. I do personally, I do reject the idea that, okay, you made a mistake in practice. Now everybody has to run. And I did that. You know, I did that plenty of times, even in Namibia, um, especially that first year. But as I grew and matured, it's like, and I, should I even be in charge? I mean, th- these are human beings working together. Why should I even be in charge? And that second year, I hardly ever went into a huddle. I just let the team run the huddles. Um, if I were to, if I were still coaching, I probably would be even more removed than than I was then, because if you think about any other area of life, it's kind of crazy that we would just let you know you you wouldn't let your boss hopefully, or you wouldn't be in a situation where you had to endure this, where your boss can just come in, scream and yell at you curse you out, call you a dumb motherfucker, and then tell you to, to go out in the hallway and run sprints or run <laughs> up the stairs and then say, be back here at midnight so you can run some more stairs. We would not accept that in any other area of life. Coach K works at Duke University. If a student walks into a Duke University professor's classroom late that professor can't MF that kid and then tell the whole class to go run sprints, (laughs) right? It's this weird thing that we accept in coaching. And then also, especially with somebody like Bob Knight, who I, I, I don't respect and I think has caused a lot of harm and a lot of trauma in people's lives. Yeah, he won championships. How many potentially great players were cast aside kicked off, never even went out for the team because of his approach. How many potentially great players are there in high school or middle school who never even go out for the team because the coach is an asshole? Bob Knight coached from a place of anger and ego. It was about him. And I don't think there's any place for that in in great coaching, regardless if you win or not. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if you win, you had great players. Yeah. Um, does is there a difference in that set? Is there a difference in the amount of control a coach should assert based on the level of play? In other words, high school versus. I mean, even even in your situation, you even though it was a lot of same kids. One year it was high school, and the next year it was professional. Um, is there a difference in that sense in the amount of control you feel the need to assert? I think there's a difference in it's important to have some understanding of brain development, how people grow, um, whether they're, they're kids, teenagers, adults. So I was also lucky in that in the intervening time between coaching, I got my PhD in educational leadership. So I learned and I'd been teaching for for several years. So I'd learned a lot about how people learn, how you best perform, how you best acquire a skill and then perform that skill. 
So long story short, I think what you need to do is help people understand, okay, here's how you run a pick and roll. So there would be times early on in the season in games, that second year in the professional league, where I would call pick and roll. We call it number one. I'd say number one. Might even say number one Mervin, meaning Mervin's the one who should set the screen. But by the end of the season, that knowledge and that responsibility is transferred over to the team. And I didn't have to call anything because um, the players had internalized the game and our, our strategy, our approach to such an extent that Seppo, who was the point guard, kind of the star of the book, Seppo would just call number one or he'd call special or he'd call whatever. So there are times where you kind of need to have the the training wheels on. Okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to call it. I want you to execute it. But right. it's only in service of eventually I, I shouldn't have to do any of this because, again, it's the team. Now, sometimes where it helps, you're a writer. Sometimes it helps to have an editor because you get lost in the weeds and an editor says, this is working. I think you should take this out. I think you should rearrange this. So that's sort of how I think about coaching. By, by the end, it was just, hey, I should call something out here because they can't see it right now. And because I'm a step removed, I can see it. But other right. than that, it's your job to create a positive, relaxed environment where people are learning, getting better, enjoying being with their team, and and then sit down and shut the fuck up during the games. Right. You know, you talk a lot in the book about, um, as you just touched on your approach to teaching um, and how a number of the players on your team improved over the course of the year, how they coalesced as a unit, how they internalized, you know, a number of your lessons um, and so forth. How did you grow as a person as a result of, of your coaching experience in Namibia? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so again, it was, it was progression, right? So even though I was a much different coach that first year, I still had some of those remnants. And by the end of my second year, as we discussed, it was just detachment from the outcome. So I think that I think experiencing practically that these things you have theories about, if, if we started every practice meditating for five or 10 minutes, if we practice the fundamentals every day without using a ball, if we, uh, you know, one of the, one of the rules or guidelines we had is everybody had to slap five, you know, after they made a layup in the layup line, just those little things like encouraging connection, do those things translate in the real world in the, in, in the case of basketball winning games or performing well in a game. And so it was, um, reassuring, I guess, that these things you, you think will work, they did work. And so it just made me lean into them even more because it is really weird, right? To have a coach who's not even going in the huddle, who's not standing up during the games, who's not saying anything during the games. It's weird to meditate in the middle of a game, to have the team meditate in the middle of a game. Um, it doesn't look anything like what we think coaching is. And so there was some pushback, but a lot less pushback than there would have been here in the States if I was coaching a high school team and Absolutely, dealing with yeah. super involved parents. So I probably, I don't know that this, my my approach would work just doing all this stuff at once. You kind of would have to ease into it. But there it was, or what I learned was it does work. And 
the things that you you suspect are working, you should do even more, like meditation. Did being a, a white man in a predominantly black country coaching black kids mm-hmm. who in a country that wasn't that far removed from a apartheid, did did that were you conscious of that dynamic? Did that affect your coaching style in any sense? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know if it affected my coaching style. It's certainly something that all of us are aware of. Uh, I mean, often in the gym for a game, I was the only white person in the gym. And I think one thing that helped in terms of relationship building was the um, under apartheid, the the white people who were in charge, who were violently enforcing the norms of apartheid, uh, the name for that group is the Boers, um, the Boers, B-O-E-R-S. I don't even know what Boers means. It's an Afrikaans word. I, I've heard that there and, was the Boers War at some point. Yeah, yeah, uh, the Boer War. Yeah. Yep. So I don't present as a Boer, right? There's sort right. of, um, okay. right. and, and I don't speak Afrikaans. Right. Um, so that helped in that, okay, he's white, but he's a... You know, he's a different kind of white. Right. Um, but s- some of the players, there was hesitation, I think, because I was probably the only white person they had spent uh, a significant amount of time with. Um, for me, fr- from a, a moral, ethical framework, um, having been a Peace Corps volunteer in Namibia, having taught public school in the Delta, having been back in Namibia, um, whether it's in the U.S. Or, or globally, I think the 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 wrongs of of racism are something that all of us um, had. We we all have work to do, and so that's sort of I think central to to the work that I've done over the years. Right. So clearly, I mean. You had wonderful experience coaching in, in Namibia. Why, why did you give it up? Mm, good question. So eventually, so I, we, we, co- we had the team for two more years after that, after the second year. And eventually it just was taking up so much time and spending money. You know, I, I paid each of the guys maybe 50 bucks. I mean, so it's a professional league, but some guys on some teams didn't get paid at all. You know, there's always sketchy stories and so forth. Some guys got paid, you know, a, a livable wage for my guys. I was a teacher. I uh, didn't, didn't have a bunch of money to draw on. I did fundraisers each year here in the States and that, that helped a lot, but just even giving guys $50 a month just to help with groceries or taxi money, so forth. Taxis are the way that people, it's like the subway in the, in New York. Taxis are the way that everybody gets around. Mm-hmm. It's like a dollar to go from point A to point B. So it just was taking up too much time and, and too much money. And so that's why I stopped and it was great actually. So then all I would do, you know, the guys that I coached kind of the guys on the team kind of all dispersed to other teams. Mm-hmm. So I would just go to the games 
all, one of my guys was always playing on one or both teams. I didn't care who won or lost. I would just cheer for my guys. Right. It was the best. There's no, even though, you know, you meditated and detaching from the outcome, there's still stress, right? There was no stress. It was just, hey, Jack's playing well. Standing's playing. Like our camera guy, you know, just worked hard and, and became this incredible shooter. And now he's a great player in the KBA. Or Jack, this player who tripped on his first day of practice, right. couldn't even do a defensive shuffle, is now a star in the KBA. And it's so fulfilling to just it was so fulfilling to just go and sit and cheer for my guys do you think you'll ever coach again i don't know i didn't i didn't ever think i would coach again after 28 years old so you know no idea i mean if this past 18 months has taught us anything you never know what's coming absolutely all right, I have one one final question for you, Ben. Um, but first, let me just say again, uh, Ben's book is called Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of Namibian Odyssey. Uh, ben, tell, tell everybody where they could find your book. Yeah, thank you. So you can get it on Amazon, exclusively on Amazon. It's available as an ebook, as a hardcover, and as a paperback. So you can get it on Amazon. And if you're interested in – so I self-published – And I learned a lot about that process. And if you're interested in learning something about that process, I have a newsletter, a Substack, where I write about kind of the ins and outs of writing, publishing, editing, promoting, um, and then thoughts about leadership, coaching, learning. So anyway, that newsletter is benbo.substack.com. That's benbo, B-E-N-B-O.substack.com. If you want to sign up for that, I do a weekly podcast interview, usually with other authors. Paul has been on, on the podcast. But for the book, Memoir of a Namibian, I mean, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, uh, it's available at Amazon.com. All right, Ben. And and I, I, I highly recommend this book. It's just, it's, it's really um, heartwarming is, is the word I use. It's a heartwarming story uh, really about... Uh, growth and and uh relationships and um and leadership um it's it's you know really ben really introduces a whole new form of leadership which has proven to be successful um and and not only successful on the court but clearly um his players have thrived in that in that environment and he's built wonderful relationships as a result of that so it's it's transcended the basketball court um Here's my last question, Ben. I like to ask all my guests, what is your all-time favorite sports book? Uh, great question. So I'm currently working with a, a retired NBA player who played on the Bulls teams of the 90s, um, the first three-peat team, and then played with Allen Iverson, with the Sixers, played with LeBron on the Cavs, and uh, I'm co-writing his, his memoir. And so I've done a deep dive into sports memoirs as a result. And I can tell you the sports memoir genre is hit or miss. Um, The best sports memoir that I've read, and I think kind of universally regarded as one of the best, if not the best, is Open by Andre Agassi. And a guy named Jay Moringer was his, his ghostwriter although he gets full credit in, in Agassiz's afterward. That's fantastic. Um, in terms of sports books, John McPhee's 
a sense of where you are about Bill Bradley at Princeton is amazing. Uh, that's a basketball book, obviously. There's another basketball book that no one's ever heard of about the 92 Dream Team by a guy named Cameron Stouth. It's called The Golden Boys. And I just reread it recently to see if it was as good as I remembered. That's excellent. And actually, I think, my, I don't think I know. My introduction to great writing was through a series called The Best American Sports Writing, which every year the, the series editor is a guy named Glenn Stout who edited my book. He edited Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. And every year there there would be a an editor for that year, someone like uh, Jackie McMullen or Jeff Perlman or David Halberstam, and just collect that year's best sports writing. And so that series, which I think ended last year or two years ago, but it, it went on for about 30 years, the best American sports writing, that was my introduction, one of my introductions to great writing. So I can't rec- recommend going back and on eBay or on Amazon picking up some of those books. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that that series ended. Yeah, the, the Glenn's doing a new, uh, a different publisher has started a new series called, I think it's the best, the year's best sports writing, but that's different from the best American sports writing. So it's restarted, and Glenn is editing this year's edition of that book. All right. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. What's yours? Mine is, uh, heaven is a playground mm. by Rick Tellender. You ever read that one? No, I haven't read it. Every, I mean, I've heard of it, of course. Yeah, but oh, I love it. Yeah. It's really, I'll tell, you, just... I'll tell you another great sports book is the Knicks of the nineties. <laughs> so go out, pick, thank you, go sir. Out and pick, 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 it, pick up Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball and then get the Knicks of the 90s as well. Absolutely. All right, Ben. Well, thanks again so much for coming on. It was great to have you. And best of luck with the book. Great. Thank you so much, Paul. All right.